Please join me in the book of Matthew, chapter number 6. Matthew, chapter number 6 today. So we wrap up um, a study we've been in the last couple of months. We've been looking at the church that says yes. And the church that says yes, what are we called to say yes to? Um, who's the one that we look to? What are the things that a New Testament church is built on and is founded upon? And so we've studied about a church that says yes to discipleship, a church that says yes to um, the newcomer, a church that says yes to the lost, the church that says yes to all sorts of different things. I'd encourage you, you can jump online and you can listen to any of those past messages, whether through uh, wherever you get podcasts, or you can jump onto our YouTube channel or Facebook, and you can look at past messages there, and you can connect with us that way. And then this coming week, um, so on the 25th week from today, we're kicking off a new study um, that I've entitled Running from Grace. Running from Grace. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend four weeks in the book of Jonah. We're going to take a week per each chapter. How many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah? You say, I know about the story of Jonah. If I had to tell someone about the story of Jonah, I could tell the story of Jonah, right? Um, because we all know Jonah and the, the, the big fish, the whale. All right, we're not going to start any fights in here today. Okay. All right. Um, we've all, you know, many of us have seen the VeggieTales movie. So we've been there. We've done that, right? And so we know, we know the story of Jonah, right? Um, can I tell you a secret? If you were here last week, don't, don't wrap me out, okay? Jonah is not about the whale. <sighs> Jonah is not about the whale. So if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, but really you've, uh, maybe uh, I've met some people, they've wrestled with, what is Jonah about? Well, it's about, you know, turning back to God, and, and there's, there's so much depth that takes place in the book of Jonah. I think, this is, personal, this is opinion, this is subjective, I think the book of Jonah is actually the most humorous book in the Bible. I think it's the most humorous book in the Bible. Um, and we'll jump into some of why that is next week. Um, it's a funny, funny, funny book that teaches some very, very powerful Lessons, And so I'm excited to jump into that with you guys next week, running from grace, starting next Sunday morning for the next four weeks. But today, we're in the book of Matthew chapter number six. And as we wrap up a church that says yes, I think it would be a disservice to go through speaking of a church uh, and what a church ought to say yes to without taking the time to look at the church that says yes to prayer. The church that says yes to prayer. Now, I believe that prayer is one of the most talked about but underutilized of what we could call the spiritual disciplines. The things that we talk about and we say uh, someone who is a believer and a follower of Jesus should do X, Y, Z. Prayer is one of those that often gets put on the back burner. If you're like me, uh, we struggle with prayer, right? Um, and some of you in here, you might say, that's not me. I don't struggle with prayer. Great. Excellent. I would love to connect with you so you can help me. All right, and I mean that sincerely. I'm not saying that sarcastically because prayer is one of those things that oftentimes if we are a little bit type A, if we're a little bit driven and we want to do things right, we decide that I can just go do something and prayer is, you know, it's important, right? But, and then we go from there. But prayer is one of those things that one, one person said it this way. He said, prayer does not bring about the greater work, but prayer is the greater work. And so as we go into the word of God today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew chapter number six. This is a passage that many call the Lord's prayer or the model prayer. And so we're going to explore what is being said in this prayer as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. What are the things that he believes he needs to instill in those who are following after him? 
And so we'll deep dive here just for a few minutes into Matthew chapter number six. But before we go too much further, I really want to say this. I want to get this out front. This, the best way to learn to pray is to pray. The best way to learn to pray is to pray. Now, does it help to go read books on prayer or to study biblical passages about prayer and to learn about what's taking place in prayer? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. But the best way to learn to pray is to pray. You can have all the head knowledge, all the theory, all of the theology behind prayer, but still be lousy in prayer because we never pray. Could you imagine an athlete um, who w- w- wanted to play, um, let's say someone had aspirations to play professional basketball. Well, you wouldn't start with, hey, let's sit down and look at all, all the schemes that go into playing basketball. Here's these types of defenses and types of offenses. No, what, what would you do? You'd take them outside with a basketball and you'd say, okay, dribble. Okay, take a shot. Okay, get your hands on the ball. And so that's a lot like prayer. And so as we look at prayer, I want us to always remember the best way to learn to pray is... To pray. Anyone surprised by that? Only a couple people? Okay, good. Watch what happens here in Matthew chapter number six. And I want to look at verse number five, just the first four words that we find here. Matthew chapter six, verse number five. Jesus says this, and when you pray. And when you pray. You see, he's not assuming He doesn't say what? If you pray, right? He doesn't come to the disciples and say, if you pray, pray this way. He says, when you pray. So this morning, I think it would be very appropriate for us, before we go too much further into the message, to once again go before the Lord with a brief time of prayer. Father, today, Lord, we rejoice with those who are baptized. Lord, we rejoice in changed lives and lives that you're drawing to yourself. Lord, we praise you that you brought us all here today. Lord, we know that no one is here by mistake. No one came here accidentally. Even if it was an accident on our part, you knew it before uh, we stepped through these doors. And so, Father, today I ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would help the truth of the word to bear weight on us. And, Lord, I pray that you would, especially in this area of prayer, help us, Lord, to be faithful. As it's one of those things, Lord, that we, in our impatience, skip over. In our sinful, fallen, weak human nature, we we set aside sometimes. So Lord, I pray that you would call us to be a church and burden us to be a church that says yes to prayer. And Father, I pray that you would work through the power of your word this morning. We ask everything in the name of Jesus. Amen. So before Jesus really jumps into how to pray. I think what's really interesting here is that he goes into how not to pray. Has anyone ever um, learned something by seeing how not to do it? Um, If you ever go out on the golf course with me, um, there's a couple people in here that I've golfed with. I can be very good at showing you how not to golf. All right. I am one of the, I mean, top five. Joe's laughing because he knows it's true. All right. I am greatest of all time in how not to golf. I can swing the club, and I can, you'll be amazed at what directions the ball goes. The only thing I've yet to do is hit it behind me, but it's coming. The day is coming where the ball will go behind me, so just be careful. No one is ever safe, all right? How not to do things. And if we think long enough, I think we could all learn about a time when someone was showing us how to do something, and, and we looked at it, and we go, it's not supposed to work that way, is it? And they just respond with, I'm showing you how not 
to do it. And we let them have it, right? We let them save face. We're like, okay, yep, thanks, Dad. Okay. But here, Jesus really opens up in the beginning of chapter 6. Before he jumps into the prayer and what prayer is, he starts with, here's how I don't want you to pray. And really what's taking place is he's addressing a couple of specific misconceptions that existed and still exist today about prayer. Uh, Watch this in verse number five. Let's finish reading this verse. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And so who is he talking about? He's talking about religious leaders who like to go out into the synagogue. The synagogue was a place um, that would probably be most comparable to a church gathering place today where they would read the Torah and where they would open up um, the word of God and they would read from. And so he said, these religious leaders, they wanted to come pray in the synagogue. They were looking for ways to be seen of others. And if they couldn't get a spot in the synagogue, what would they do? They would go to the street corners and they would offer their prayers. But wherever they were praying, they were doing it publicly and openly so that everyone could look around and be like, wow, how spiritual is that guy? Oh, how spiritual are they? What an inspiration. And you know what? These guys bought into it. So they walked around saying, yep, you know what? I, yes, I am very good at prayer. Thank you so much. How messed up is that? to gain pride from prayer. But that's what they would do. And what does he say to them? How does he address them? He says, don't do that. Don't behave that way. But he says this, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You see, if you're praying for the acknowledgement and for the understanding of others, if you're praying for the attention of others and you get it, okay. In fact, that's not really prayer at all, is it? Because the purpose is totally different as we're about to see. But if we're doing this so that others see and others acknowledge, then you have your reward. But he says instead, he contrasts this and he says this, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, when we go to God in prayer, it's not to be a showy thing, an outward thing, but he says, go to him in secret. Don't tell anyone. Go to a place that no one even knows that you're praying. You see, if everyone that knows has to know that you are praying, you're doing it wrong. This is what Jesus says. And so he says, instead, go in secret to prayer. Go in secret to this place and seek after your father who is in secret. You see, even as God works in this world, we went through a series on the book of Esther. And we see that whole book of Esther is a story where God is never named, but he works powerfully. This is how God functions in the world. And yet, when we pray, if, we're, if something's wrong in our heart, we can desire the attention of others. And so this is one way that we can learn not to pray. And the second is this. He goes right into it. When you pray... Verse number seven, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard from their many words. 
Do not be like them. And so he contrasts this with who he calls the Gentiles. These are the irreligious. These are the ones who, I say irreligious, these are not the ones following after the God of Israel, but these are those who are praying to pagan gods and to false gods. And even as they pray, oftentimes as they pray, what they're doing is they're lifting up and lofting up um, just a repeated phrase over and over and over and over again. You ask what that phrase means. Well, it kind of means this, but it's just a repetition. It's just this over and over and over and over and over the same thing. It's more of a chant than a prayer. And so these first century followers of Jesus are being exposed to the Pharisees. They're being exposed to the Gentiles. And Jesus says, you know, prayer is really not like that. And what we just found is we read at least three times when Jesus said, when you pray. And so Jesus is expecting his followers to engage in prayer. Everybody with me? Let's jump right into what we call the Lord's Prayer, because he finishes this statement out by saying this, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. And so Jesus doesn't leave it as how not to pray, but instead he jumps into how to pray. And let's see what we can learn about how to pray, what we can learn about God from this prayer. He says, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see here in this very first verse of what we call the Lord's prayer, we find a really profound truth. We find that God is both personal and relational, and yet he is separate. God is both personal and relational, and yet he is separate and he is holy. And this is an amazing dichotomy. Because what we find throughout history is many religions preach about a God who is either or, while we serve a God who is both and. Here's what I mean by that. At the very beginning, we see that Jesus says this, our what? Our Father. Father has a relational tone to it, doesn't it? He doesn't just say our God, our deity, but he prays our Father. There is a relational aspect that is taking place. In fact, in the book of John, John writes and he records that as many as received Jesus, like those who express faith today, as many as received Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons or the children of God. And so at the moment of our salvation, when we reject any good works that we could do to earn our way to God, and we turn instead to say, God, I am leaning only on you and the gift of your son, Jesus. When we turn to him, we find that we are adopted into his family. And we are become one with the family of God. We are brought in through the gift and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so when we pray, we can pray our Father. That's why the author of Hebrews speaks of coming boldly before the throne. Because you don't, I, I, most of us, you know, if you have, if you have a, a loving Father, you don't fearfully approach your Father, right? If you have a need, you're willing to go before your Father for that need. I'll give you a couple of examples. My children um, are, are all very young, as you know, my kids. Uh, my oldest is five. I have five-year-old, four-year-old twin boys. I mean, our house, it's a mess, right? All right, we're constantly just, you know, chasing them around. They're somewhere around here, probably breaking something. I mean, welcome to the world, right? And then what happens around uh, the middle of the day, right, is they begin to get hungry, right? Well, when they wake up, really, they're hungry, and then they get hungry again, and then they get hungry again, and then they get hungry again. I mean, like, you would think if you fed them once, you'd just be happy, right? 
Be done with it. But no, you have to feed them, 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 you have to feed them. As their father, if my child comes to me, and it's coming up on lunchtime, they said, Dad, I'm a little hungry. What would be the appropriate response of a loving father? To respond with food, right? Now listen, if your kid sits there and they don't eat everything and then they get down from the table and they say they're hungry, all right, now we've got a different conversation. But you know, there's a time and there's a place for food, right? That's a need that my children have. And as their father, I am going to do my best to make sure that that need is met. I'm not going to let that need go unmet. And so we find that God here, he is relational with us, and yet he is separate. So just because he's relational doesn't mean that he is just like you and I. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But rather, God is, as Jesus prays here, hallowed, or he is made holy. Holiness speaks to the separateness of God. The, the nature of God, the God who is able, the God who has power, the God who is sinless, the God who knows all and sees all and can do all things. And so at the same time, while he is our father in heaven, he is also holy and he is also capable of caring for us. And so as we approach prayer, it's important for us to understand that God is both deeply relational and he reigns supremely. He is both deeply relational and he reigns supremely. He is not either or, but he is both and. But not only that, let's look at verse number 10. As Jesus prays, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we see the involvement here in human affairs. We find this this reigning, this holiness begins to embody itself as Jesus prays that your kingdom come. Your kingdom come and you come here. Really, these two statements um, come together as he prays that the kingdom has come and that the will of God is done. You see, the kingdom of God is the place where the will of God is done. And so here as Jesus prays, he's praying, God, do the things that you desire to do. God, let your kingdom come here. And really where this begins is this is truly a prayer of surrender. As you and I pray, as we go to God and we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. What we're rejecting is my kingdom come, my will be done. But we don't care for that too much, do we? We really like our kingdoms don't we? We like to do things. How many of you like to do things your way? We all do to a little bit, right? We're all control freaks to some degree. All right. And we're all hopefully repenting of that to some degree all the time. Because the fact is, is that you can't have your kingdom and his kingdom. They are incompatible. They don't, it doesn't work that way. When we come before God, we're saying, God, you are, and I am not. You are on the throne and I am down here. Your kingdom rules and reigns. I am merely a subject. And this is an important distinction. Because as we come to God in prayer, God is not your genie in a bottle. God is not our wish granting anything. And in fact, as you pray and the more you pray, what you'll find is oftentimes your prayers will not be answered the way that you think your prayers ought to be answered. 
If you've spent time in your life in prayer and you've seen God answer those prayers, oftentimes those prayers are not answered in the way that you and I would desire them to be answered. We have it set up in our own way that, God, if you would just do point A and then point B and then point C, and then you would just do this, and then, oh, God, that would work out great. Aren't you so blessed to have me? And now through prayer, I'm telling you the way that you ought to answer my prayer. But then God always has this way of coming in and doing it totally different than we could ever see, and often in a far greater way than we could ever ask or think or imagine. Because the fact is that our ways are not his ways. And that's a good thing. Because he's so far above us. You know what? If God followed all of my plans, he would have messed up a lot. Okay? And I think all of us have to come to the place that we admit this. And we say, God, it's your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. And it's okay that God sometimes disappoints you. Because the fact is, is that you and I, we don't know what we need or want. We don't know the things that will actually satisfy us and make us happy or fulfill us. We don't. We're limited. And so even as God answers these things, very often he answers these things in ways that we don't fully understand. And that's a good thing. Because the kingdom of God is the place where his will is done. And so you say, well, I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's his will. His will is done. He's my father, but he's also the king. He is both. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Because he understands that you and I, in our weakness and our failings and our flesh, we have needs. How many of you in this room, you have needs today? You say, I, have, I can think of something that I can say, I need this. Right? Like six or seven of you at least. It's incredible. <laughs> I've picked good friends to be around because you guys don't have any needs. And so you guys can just meet my needs. And I don't have to worry about any of your needs because your needs are all met. And my needs are, I'll tell you about them later. Okay? We've all got needs. But what we find is that our needs here in verses 11 and 12 are known and are met in a truly amazing way. Because Jesus prays this. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So what's happening here in verse 11? He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, a short verse, one that uh, many of you, if you've been around church for a length of time, it probably rings a little bit familiar. Give us this day our daily bread. How much bread is he asking for in this prayer? Give me a lifetime supply of bread. Is that the prayer that's taking place? Give us this day our daily bread. Oftentimes, we want the needs of tomorrow met, and the needs of next week met, and the needs of next year met, and the needs of five years from now met, and ten years from now, and all of these needs. We want all of those needs met. But what is Jesus encouraging his disciples to pray for? Daily provision. Daily provision. And we're going to get into why in in just a moment. We're going to get into why in just a moment. Because what we're going to find is the rest of this chapter, even after the Lord's Prayer presses into the anxiety, the worry, the stresses that you and I all endure. We'll press into that here in just a minute. You see, as he instructs his disciples to pray for daily bread, this is a daily dependence on God. This isn't a dependence that says, God, I needed you once and now I'm all set. 
I needed you if you're a Christian. I needed you for my salvation, but now I'm good. I can do it on my own. That's not what's taking place here. What's happening here is Jesus is coming in and Jesus is praying and he's saying, daily bread. I need you every day. I don't need you once in a while. I don't need you when things are bad. I don't need you occasionally, but daily, God, I need you. And I'm acknowledging this desperate need. Because prayer is an acknowledgement on this dependence. Prayer is coming to God and saying, God, I cannot do it without you. But what we see at the end of this chapter is we see the the anxiety that he says to not worry about. And in fact, he even begins at verse number 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. And so he speaks of the, the, the way that disciples ought to handle finances and handle riches. And then he comes to 25 and he says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he gives us this example. This is always convicting to me. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them, right? I can tell I'm getting a little bit older because I'm enjoying more and more watching birds. Okay, so you're either getting younger or older. Okay, those are the two extremes, all right? You're not supposed to do that in your 30s, I think. Um, I don't know. But the other day, I was watching. Um, I was sitting outside. I was doing some reading in one of those really nice evenings. Kids were in bed. And, uh, and I was actually reading this passage and kind of thinking through today. And, and I saw a bird come out and begin kind of jumping and diving and swooping up food. Like a little robin was just coming through. It was just like, God, no one would know if anything happened to that little robin. I mean, how many, we see robins daily, if not multiple, right? If you pay attention, they're all over the place. They're so common. That's the sparrow, right? We see these just birds that are just everywhere and no one would miss that robin. But if God provides for them, how much more is he going to provide for you? How much more valuable are you than one of those little birds that he takes care of every day? You see, our anxiety and our worry and our fear pushes against this knowledge that God is going to provide. We don't want the daily bread. We want the weekly or the monthly or the annual or the whatever, centennial bread, right? maybe, right? That we never have to worry about it again. But he promises us and he says, pray for daily. This faith that is dependence on the one who is providing for you. And then he transitions from our physical needs, this bread being representative of all of our physical needs, to watch this. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here, I believe he's going into speaking of our spiritual needs, the spiritual needs that we have. Even as you and I are separated from God through our sin, and even as Jesus, the Son of God, was given as a atonement as a payment for our sins. And you see, as Jesus died in our place, that's what we call the good news of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. That was symbolized this morning in baptism. And so we find that here he says, forgive us our sin, but he equates this even to how we forgive others. Because did you know that forgiven people forgive people? That's how we behave. 
When we understand the tension that was existed between us and God, then really the tension that exists between each other pales in comparison. Because I've found that oftentimes when there's conflict, not always, but oftentimes when there's conflict, it comes from both sides, right? You say, well, maybe, yeah, I did that, but they did this. But Jesus says here, hey, forgive us, even as we. He makes this something that is just assumed, it's just built into the package that we are going to forgive those who have done wrong against us. He doesn't even leave an option of anger and bitterness within this prayer. He assumes the forgiveness of those who are believers and followers of his. And so we find this prayer of provision. And in that, we understand that our needs are known before we even ask. Our needs are known before we even ask. You see, your needs have never caught God by surprise. There's never been a time where you prayed to God and he heard your prayer and he said, what? They need what? Excuse me? There's never been a moment that you have surprised God with the thing that you're coming to him for. Because he knows your need even before you ask. Well then, why do we need to pray? Well, we'll get there in just a moment. But our needs are known even before we ask. Because, you see, we have a loving Heavenly Father. And just like a father knows the needs of his children, and just as the father is caring for the needs of his children, our Heavenly Father cares even so much more for us. Look at verse number 13. Jesus prays, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So here we see a God of deliverance. He says, Lead us not into temptation. This word temptation here, um, is a word that's translated often as either temptation or uh, as a testing. And so here, as Jesus is praying, he's saying, God, don't lead us into testing. Now, we know that God does not lead anyone into sin. We know that God does not directly direct us into sin. James covers that very, very clearly and says that's not how things work. But here, as he's praying, he's saying, don't deliver us into this testing. Yeah, don't, don't pull us into this testing because we understand that hard times exist in life, right? If you've lived long enough, you understand there are difficult days that we all walk through. Some days it's mountaintop and you're like, this is great and life is awesome. And then some days you're just in the valley and it's just, you're, you're just sludging through it. And there are seasons of life that feel like mountaintops. There are seasons of life that you just feel like you're stuck in the mud. And you just can't get forward, and you can't get out, and you can't figure it out. But that's not a new thing to Christianity. That's not a new thing to our faith. But instead, that's something that is addressed over and over and over again, because you see, we serve a God who delivers. Think, if you will, back to the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. His brothers sold him as a slave into a foreign land, the land of Egypt, And did God allow Joseph to live out the rest of his days as a slave? If you remember the story, what did he do? He took Joseph and he elevated Joseph, not through the processes that Joseph would have desired, not through the way that Joseph would have wanted to go about doing this, but through a miraculous way, God brought Joseph and elevated him and delivered him. 
Uh, we find Moses all through the, the wanderings in Egypt. We find even at the Red Sea, as they were leaving Egypt many generations later, that Moses and the people of Israel were stuck between the sea and an army. They were in a vulnerable, a weak spot where they could have been easily overrun and decimated were it not for God. And yet God steps in, and what does he do? He parts that Red Sea. He delivers his people again. And we see Daniel, the one who he was in trouble for the prayers that he offered to God. And yet what happens to Daniel? As the king's decree goes out that no one is allowed to pray to anyone other than the king, Daniel is convicted of this, uh, of this law breaking and he is thrown into the lion's den. But even in the middle of that, God delivered, right? God delivers. Does that mean that trials will never come into our lives? No. No, it doesn't mean that they will never happen. It doesn't mean we should go look for them either, okay? Please don't go out of here and look for a way. Don't go throw your leg underneath someone's car and be like, ah, trial in my life. No, that's consequence of your own actions, okay? Don't. Listen, you've been around long enough. You don't have to seek it out. It's going to find you. You don't have to go looking for the trials. They're going to come your way. But when that happens, church, we serve a God who delivers, we serve a God who delivers. 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. Uh, if you're taking notes or if you want to write this down and do something with this later. This passage is incredible to me. One of my favorite writings of Paul. Because here Paul expresses some very vulnerable feelings that he has going on. 2 Corinthians chapter number 1, beginning in verse number 8, Paul says this. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Wow, that's a strong statement, isn't it? Is this Paul the optimist? Is this Paul saying things that are, oh, uplifting? Oh, wow, so encouraging, Paul. I, I felt like we, our whole team, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. We're standing here trying to minister, trying to do a work of God, and we despaired of life itself. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, you know what? I think in, this, in the middle of this, he's feeling this way. He says, God, not that Paul was suicidal or anything like that, but God, you know, he's going to bed at night and says, hey, if I, if I don't wake up tomorrow, it'll be easier that way. There's some real despair going on in his life, Right? As he says, I don't, uh, life itself was just a burden. He was walking through one of those valleys. He was struggling through one of these trials and one of these temptations here. That even as Jesus is praying, he's saying, deliver us from this. Deliver us from this. Save us from these things. But why would God allow Paul to walk through that valley? Watch what happens next. But that that desperation, that feeling, that season. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He said, I felt like I was dying, but it wasn't so God could leave me there. It was so he could show me how to trust in the God that can even raise the dead. 
That's the power that we trust in. The God who delivers. And he says this, he delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us, how? By prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You see, as Paul's praying these things, does he say, this is the God who can deliver us? Does he say, we trust, I trust in the God that can deliver us out of these things? The God that can deliver us again. He says, this is the God who will deliver us. He says, I believe so firmly. He says, it's just a matter of time. I don't know how. I don't know what it's going to look like. But he will deliver us again. And God knows both you and your needs. And God can deliver. And he will. And so understand with me this morning what prayer is. Prayer is expressed dependence on the God who delivers. Prayer is expressed dependence on the God who delivers. See, when we live our lives in prayerlessness, we are taking on and shouldering that burden saying, God, I can carry that burden on my own. I don't need your help. I don't need what you provide. But God, I can provide. I can do this. I can deliver myself. Can I let you in on a little secret that's not that much of a secret? You can't. You can't. Maybe in one situation or another, you can muster up enough strength. But listen, in the big picture, you can't. You're not designed to try to go it alone. It's not what you're made for. It's not who you are. It's not how God created you. But God created you for better. God created you for himself. He created you to come alongside the God who delivers. Because he can and he will deliver you. It's in his nature. It's who he is. It's not separate from him. It's not something other than himself. It is who he is. He's the God who delivers. It's his nature, his character that can never and will never change. And so even as we go to God in prayer, we are expressing the dependence on the God who delivers. You see, he's deeply relational and he reigns supremely. He's deeply relational and he reigns supremely. You see, our needs are known even before we ask. And this prayer is the sign of our true dependence. It's the antithesis of worry. See, worry is the sign of doubt. And when we worry, when we lose hope, right? When something that we place our hope in fails us, that's when worry sets in. When that investment falls through, when that job offer doesn't work out, when that relationship fails, but we, we go, the thing we hoped in now is falling apart. And now where do we turn? So we've lost hope. But the God who delivers is a God who is able to be hoped in and trusted in. That's why Paul said our hope's on him. Our hope's on him. And that hope is expressed in no better way than the prayer of the saints. Praying is our way of coming to God. And expressing this dependence, expressing this desire, expressing the fact that we say, God, I can't do it on my own. God, I can't, I can't just grin and bear it and tough it out. God, I need you. I need you. And the truth is that is the beginning of the understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that we can't, but God can.
You're not enough, but he is. We can't earn our way to him. We can't be good enough or work hard enough. No. The gospel is Jesus in my place. He's strong where I'm weak. He has come to save me from that sin that I could never overcome. And you see, worry, worry takes away and says, God, that's mine. Let me deal with this. When God says, hey, bring it to me. Bring it to me. Cast your cares on me. Don't be anxious for anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. So we find a church that says yes to prayer, says yes, I'm depending on God. But on God who delivers. And so where do you find yourself today? Does worry overcome you and consume you? Do you find that your thoughts are always going towards that worrying as just, ah, I have to carry this burden and I have to do this on my own? You don't. You don't. When I was a, a kid, um, we would go to our uh, junior church down in the church basement. It's a musty old church basement in rural Indiana. Uh, and we would go down to this and we would sing this song. We would sing this song. It was very simple. It was very simple. It was called, Why Worry When You Can Pray. Anyone, anyone remember that song? All right. Like three of us. Cool. <laughs> Why worry when you can pray? But oftentimes, I think that we've taken that song and we've kind of twisted it around. We say, God, why pray when we can worry? Because if we're honest, if we're honest, we like that worry sometimes. It makes us feel like we're doing something about it, right? Even though worrying's never solved our problems. Worrying's never saved a marriage. Worrying's never kept anyone a job. Worrying definitely hasn't gotten you a better night's sleep. Worrying corrodes and destroys and it tears apart because that's not what you're designed for. You're designed to rest fully on the God who delivers. And the most powerful way that you can express that dependence is through prayer. 